You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. If we haven't met yet, my name's Jamie, one of the pastor elders of our church, the guy who most Sundays gets uh, to preach God's word as we gather uh, in this place. And that's surely the case this morning as we continue our way through a sermon series that we jumped into a few weeks back, one that's going to carry us right up to the season of Advent. As you see on the screen uh, behind me even now, a series entitled No Other Gospel a study of the the book of Galatians, the Magna Carta of Christian liberty as it's been deemed by some, believed, as we've talked about for weeks now, to be one of the first of uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, New Testament writings written to a number of churches that Paul helped to plant throughout the region of Galatia, an incredibly impassioned letter, uh, as we've seen for those who have been around since the beginning of this series, The Apostle Paul, having heard of some troubling things, having crept into the belief and and practice of the Galatian churches, a threat to the gospel of of Jesus Christ, false teachers having come in with a distortion of the gospel, their their teaching bewitching, particularly to the, the many Gentiles within the populations of those churches, such teaching not only stirring up division and strife, but leading many to to turn away from the one true gospel, sounding off alarm bells for the Apostle Paul, leading him to compose this impassioned letter that those in the Galatian churches might find life in the sweetness of freedom. A quote that I've shared a couple times throughout this series up to this point and trying to frame it up, Tim Keller in his commentary, he says, the book of Galatians is dynamite. It is an explosion of joy and freedom which leaves us enjoying a deep significance, security, and satisfaction. The life of blessing God calls his people into. Why? Because it brings us face to face with the gospel. It's very common in Christian circles, he says, to assume that the gospel is something mainly for non-Christians. We see it as a set of basic ABC doctrines that are the way in which someone enters the kingdom of God. We often assume that once we're converted, we don't need to hear or study or understand the gospel. We need more advanced material. But in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It is the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. Paul's letter to the the Galatians, an explosion of of joy and freedom, a letter inviting us to to sit with and and steep in its glorious truths that we, like the Galatians, might grow in deeper understanding and appreciation of the truth, the beauty, and the hope of the gospel. That's where we're going this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the uh, seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles. Utilize it during our time together this morning. Take that copy of the Bible. If you don't own a copy for yourself, we'd be excited that you're opening up the scriptures uh, as we scatter from spaces like these. 
Let me go ahead and pray for us. I know I say it a lot. We have a lot of ground to cover, but we really, really, really do this morning. So uh, let me pray and we'll jump in. God, in this steeple-adorned, hyper-churched, under-gospeled American South context in which we live, in which there are many church buildings that are absent of the, the sound of little ones and their voices, she give thanks to you for something as simple as a countdown to worship and just the, the energy in this room. Thank you that there are teachers in the other wing of this building right now proclaiming this same gospel that we're going to sit with as we open up the scriptures for these next few minutes together. The next generation. God, I pray that you would save lost people this morning and sanctify your redeemed as we sit with your inspired word spirit of God would you move in power in this place I'm already encouraged with a book like Galatians it would be so easy for people to to say as a response to this series up to this point yeah I know duh got it the gospel and yet to hear some of the encouraging words of people just so grateful that we haven't abandoned this one true gospel and that there's power every time we proclaim it. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, fortified, convicted this morning. Whatever you have for us, Lord, would you do the work that only you can do? I cannot bring people from spiritual death to life. I cannot sanctify a single saint. All I can do is try to faithfully proclaim your word and your gospel and entrust the rest to you. So would you do what only you can do? And would you do it for your glory and the joy and good of your people? In Christ's name I pray, amen. So at this point in his letter to the churches of Galatia, if I could just briefly catch us up to speed. Paul has gone to, to great lengths to defend both his apostolic authority and the authenticity of his message right out of the gate, wasting no time in incorporating elements of the gospel message into the very greeting itself. Though Paul will get into more detail as the letter unfolds, even this morning we'll see some of that. In the greeting, declaring that Jesus gave himself for our sins and was raised from the dead, the cross and empty tomb, the basic tenets of the gospel, this redemptive work of Jesus to deliver we who would otherwise be bound in the darkness of captivity, Paul says. This good news entrusted to the former Saul of Tarsus, once an insolent opponent and persecutor of the church, the man whom we now know to be the Apostle Paul, knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus by the blinding light of the risen and ascended Jesus. Paul's apostolic authority and message of divine origin commissioned Paul was not by the Jerusalem church, nor by the church in Antioch, not even by Peter himself, rather commissioned by God the Father and the risen Jesus, unlike those seeking to draw the Galatians away from the one true gospel. The lurking threat leading Paul to follow his words of greeting, not with his standard expressions of gratitude, encouragement, and prayer, which is what we see in most of Paul's letters post-greeting, rather in this letter with a word of rebuke, Chapter 1, verse 6, as Paul expresses astonishment. As I mentioned in 
previous weeks, the word translated astonished in the original Greek is the same word used again and again in the gospel accounts to describe people's response to Jesus' miracles. Paul expressing absolute shock, like one having just witnessed a legion of demons cast out of a man, or 5,000 men and their families fed with the contents of a little boy's lunchbox. The apostle Paul astonished, filled with shock. Not that there are false teachers. Paul knew that there would always be false teachers. But that the Galatians are being swayed by their teaching. That they're turning to, as Paul says, a different gospel. A distortion of the good news of Jesus Christ. The general argument being that uh, some were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. A reminder, as I've mentioned in past weeks, that threats to the gospel not only lurk outside of the church, but to arise at, at times within the church. False teaching doesn't always seek to do away with Christian terminology, but rather at times seeks to co-opt and distort those very terms and ideas. In the words of one pastor and scholar, the most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. That not everyone who professes to be a Christian serves Christ, and not every message wrapped in the word gospel is the gospel. The difference between, we talked about this last week, between the Apostle Paul and the false teachers in Galatia is the difference, as R.C. Sproul so succinctly puts it, between may and must. Imposing these false teachers were their personal convictions as universal law, a requirement to enter the kingdom of God. I shared this quote last week from Philip Graham Ryken. He says, this is a perennial danger for the church. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. Usually what gets added to the gospel is something good in itself, some particular experience of the Holy Spirit perhaps, some special ministry, usually the ministry we are involved with, some methodology for having devotions, growing a church, or raising a family some distinctive doctrine or style of worship, some political or social cause, some way of doing or of not doing what the world does. But, he says, for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to stand alone. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. Paul Paul declares that there is no other gospel, chapter 1, verse 7, that any distortion of the gospel is no gospel. That anyone who would preach a different gospel, including Paul, including the angelic host of heaven, stand under the divine curse of God, should they do so. Going back to last week, Paul himself, having gone so far as to journey to Jerusalem in an effort to undo the influence of those false teachers distorting the gospel, to show once and for all that, that he and those apostles in Jerusalem were united committed to proclaiming the one and same message to ensure that that the church wouldn't be divided. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile having been broken down in Christ. Peter, James, and John, going back to the first part of chapter 2, going so far as to extend the right hand of fellowship to Paul and his co-laborers. It was a losing moment for the Judaizers. 
Incredibly important win for the early church and for you and I. God's new temple in Jesus Christ, made up of living stones, both Jews and Gentiles, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Picking up in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul says, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Here Paul shifts from the the backdrop of Jerusalem, going back to the early part of chapter 2, to that of the city of Antioch, where the mission to the Gentiles began and the disciples were first called Christians. You can read about that in the book of Acts. Paul, having just recounted in the early part of this chapter his standing beside Peter in Jerusalem, having been extended the right hand of fellowship, here recounting his standing against Peter in Antioch. I mean, think about this. You have an apostle of Jesus Christ opposing another apostle of Jesus Christ, and not behind closed doors, but to his face before the entire church. The catalyst for Such a public confrontation, Peter's public decision to change his mealtime buddies. Having shared a table with Gentile believers, that is, until a Jewish crowd showed up from Jerusalem. Having come from James, we're told, though James declares elsewhere, Acts chapter 15, that they didn't come to Antioch with any instruction from him or the other apostles. Perhaps surprising to some, not that Peter stopped eating with Gentiles, but that he was eating with Gentiles to, to begin with. Right? Th- throughout redemptive history, God had taught Israel to regard themselves as set apart from the rest of the world, different from the surrounding nations. One of the ways being through Jewish dietary laws, which would have made it incredibly difficult to associate with non-Jewish people. Not to mention that Gentiles were considered socially outcast. Ritually unclean and their partaking of unclean foods. The definition of Gentile, essentially non-Jewish. Anything other than Jewish. To a Jew, Gentiles were considered inferior. There was an otherness about them. So that to sit down and share a meal with a Gentile is a big deal. So big a deal that it took a vision from God himself to get Peter around the Gentile table in the first place. The famous rooftop trance in the city of Joppa. I think it's important that we read that account in Acts chapter 10 because it sets the stage for what Paul's addressing here in Galatians 2. Acts chapter 10 begins with these words. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously to God. In the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. 
And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius, of the Italian cohort, which means I think we were related. A God-fearer, meaning a, a Gentile worshiper of the God of Israel. A morally upright man who had yet to hear the good news of, of Jesus Christ. A man to whom God sent an angel telling him to send for Peter in Joppa around the, the same time of which the Lord gave Peter this incredibly strange vision. If you keep reading in Acts chapter 10, we're told that the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Right? Peter was, was given a, a vision from God of a sheet let down by its four corners from heaven. A sheet filled with creatures considered unclean according to Jewish dietary law and thus unfit to eat. The Lord declaring to Peter, eat what God has made clean, do not call common. A vision which Peter would come to understand was symbolic of God's removing of the barrier to the Gentile world. Showing Peter that associating with Gentiles was part of God's redemptive plan. His mission. That he shouldn't call any person common or unclean. So that Peter, if you continue to read in Acts chapter 10, found himself in the home of Cornelius the Gentile, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his family and friends, after which Peter was asked to stay for several days, which undoubtedly would have involved a number of shared meals around the, the dining room table. Jew and Gentile dishing out their, their food from the same ladle, a tangible expression of the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile broken down by the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? This helps to explain why Peter was willing to sit down and eat with Gentile believers in the first place. And yet as soon as the circumcision party showed up in Antioch, Peter distanced himself from the very dinner table at which he had been sitting. Which surely none of us would ascribe to forgetfulness as though Peter failed to remember that crazy vision that, that he had had on that rooftop. You don't forget things like that. No, it was fear, verse 12, that drove Peter to adjust his social circles. I'm reminded of Peter's betrayal of Jesus when the servant girl identified him as one of Jesus' followers in the courtyard. What was once fear of a maidservant, now fear of the circumcision party. As Peter had said of Jesus with words, I don't know him. So he had said of the Gentiles with actions, I don't know them. And in doing so, Paul tells us, Peter led the rest of the Jews in Antioch astray. 
including Paul's co-laborer in the gospel, Barnabas. Which Paul called out, verse 13, as an act of hypocrisy. One motivated by fear of those preaching justification by faith plus obedience to the law. Paul goes on in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter and many of the other Jewish believers had been living like Gentiles in breaking bread with and embracing the non-kosher diet of the Gentile believers. While at the same time, though they themselves living like Gentiles, treating those Gentile believers as inferior for not being Jewish enough in their keeping of dietary laws upon the arrival of this Jewish crowd from Jerusalem. Peter's conduct out of step with the truth of the gospel, Paul says, along with those he had led down this path of hypocrisy. His conduct. Don't miss that. Meaning that it wasn't that Peter had embraced a false gospel in doctrine, but that he had embraced a false gospel in practice. The late Presbyterian pastor and and theologian Francis Schaeffer talked about the the two orthodoxies. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. And with that, he argued that a church can be orthodox in its doctrine, a gospel-centered church in creed and confession, everything be in right order on the beliefs page of the website, yes and amen to all of that. And at the very same time, that church be living out a heresy of practice the culture of the church community out of step with the truth of the gospel. You see it all the time. A couple of examples being those who stand among the theologically reformed with its doctrines of grace, who oftentimes are the most smug, arrogant, prideful, when those very doctrines are meant to produce humility, More broadly speaking, we having received forgiveness in Jesus, withholding it from those around us in certain situations and instances. Ray Ortland Jr., kind of a pastor of pastors within our church planting network, he says it this way. He says, a a church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine. Let me say that again. A church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine. The gospel is a a truth first and foremost. But it's a truth that has implications for our lives. So that we're to bring our lives in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter was unsaying in conduct what he was saying in doctrine. And Paul called it out as condemnable hypocrisy. Publicly before the entire church because the hypocrisy itself was public in nature. Peter having publicly endangered the corporate witness of the church so that Paul saw it wise to publicly rebuke Peter in order to set things right for everyone looking in on this moment. The Apostle Peter. It's a sobering reminder that none of us is beyond 
temptation as it pertains to standing for the truth of the gospel when the approval of others is at stake. Whether it be the compromising of the message itself in some way or the decisions we make when we're around those whose approval means most. Paul's rebuke of Peter, a booming declaration that no matter whose approval is at stake, going back to chapter 1, verse 10, we are servants of Christ. Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also... We, we Jews have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Meaning, and this is going to matter when we get a few verses down the road, this is critical to clarify, meaning not that Jews were not sinners, but rather that in contrast to the Gentiles, they were a law-keeping people. The Gentiles were not a law-keeping people. And yet Paul says, even the most devoted law-keeping Jew is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The word justification, it's a forensic word. It's a legal term. It's courtroom language. The opposite of justification, which helps us to understand justification itself, the opposite is condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, Paul says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. The opposite of justification is condemnation. Condemnation being the legal declaration of a person as guilty in the sight of God. All of humanity in the wake of Adam's sin, having been born into an inherited sinful state. All of us, sinners by nature and choice. No exclusions. Like our first parents in the garden, our sin condemns us before God. And the sentence that awaits the guilty in the cosmic courtroom of God is the sentence of death. And not only physical death, but spiritual death. The umbilical cord between God and man, it's been severed. And if we die a physical death... In our state of spiritual death, we will experience eternal death. Sentenced to eternal conscious punishment in hell as Jesus himself taught in the Gospels. That's the bad news. Makes the good news all the sweeter. Coming back to Romans 8, that our God is a God who justifies. That God is willing to legally declare sinners like you and me righteous in his sight. But how? one might ask. It's the very question that Job asked. How can a man be in the right before God? On what basis is a perfect, holy, righteous God willing to declare a sinful person righteous in his sight? I mean, the the mere thought of absolving guilt, which most of the world buys into, It assumes a forensic problem before a higher power. A judicial status before a person's maker that must be rectified. And so much of the world embraces a plan of self-rescue. 
self-justification through good works. And we get busy separating the world into the good guys and the bad guys. And of course, we ourselves are always the good guys. And not on the basis of God's holy standard, of course, but in comparing ourselves to those who are more sinful than us as we look around. Which, by way of illustration that I've used before, is sillier than saying, hey, let's all try to jump and touch the moon. And some of us getting three feet off the ground and others of us getting two and a half off the ground and the three-footers looking around smugly. We're all still millions of miles away from the moon. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. Self-justification, it's a hopeless endeavor. That's why James would say, James chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. This is why Paul says, verse 16 of Galatians 2, that by works of the law no one will be justified. That on the basis of our own merits we stand condemned before God, pronounced guilty in his sight. This is no trial in in which we're innocent until proven guilty. This is a trial in which we've already been proven guilty with no hope of self-wrought innocence. And yet, God is willing to justify sinners, to pronounce sinners as righteous in his sight. But not on the basis of our own merits or our own attempts to blame shift or explain our sin away. How then, one might ask, how can guilty sinners have any hope of being declared righteous in God's sight? And and most of us in this room know the answer to the question. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift God declares guilty sinners righteous in his sight as a gift of grace. And it's a gift of forgiveness and right legal standing before God that we receive by faith. As Paul goes on to say, Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And Paul's not talking about just some vague generalized faith. A lot of people in the world who are faith-filled people. No, Paul's talking specifically about faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. Donald McLeod, in his book, Christ Crucified, he says, It was not enough for Christ to suffer any kind of death. It had to be a judicial death involving an arraignment, an accusation, and a condemnation. Pilate, the authority established by God, is the symbol and executor of a judicial process, a legal process, by which Jesus was formally found guilty and formally sentenced. He was not murdered by an assassin or lynched by a mob or killed in an accident. No, he was convicted, or, yeah, convicted by a judge after due process and judicially executed. See the legal imagery there? Judicially condemned in our place, dealing with the legal demands of our sin. As Paul says famously elsewhere, Colossians chapter 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Here it is, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. As John Stott says, justification is not a synonym for amnesty, which strictly is pardon without principle, a forgiveness which overlooks, even forgets wrongdoing and declines to bring it to justice. No, he says, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice. When God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good or saying they are not sinners at all. No, he is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law because he himself in his son has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. If you don't have a hallelujah rising up in you yet, come on. The doctrine of justification declares that Jesus not only took our guilt but that he also gifted us his perfect righteous record to hold before a holy God. As Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians 3.9, Paul says, Not having a righteousness of my own that I've drummed up that comes from the law, But that which comes through faith in Christ imputed to me the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Justification. It's an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as pardoned and Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So that when we receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness counts for us. Think about this. As if you and I, sinners that we are, had lived the righteous life that God demands. It's crazy. You might say, I don't deserve that. How how could that be? And you're right. None of us deserves that. that. That's the good news. If we got what we deserved, we'd all be hopelessly condemned. The hope of the gospel being that God gives us what we don't deserve and put upon Jesus what we do deserve. This justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we must but believe. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, the disciples asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Or Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. Then the Philippian jailer brought Paul and Silas out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In the words of one pastor and scholar, we are acceptable to God, not by keeping his law, but by trusting in the only man who ever did, Jesus Christ. Coming back to this morning's passage, Peter had believed in Christ Jesus, verse 16, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But he was unsaying in conduct what he was saying and believing in doctrine. So that Paul goes on, verse 17, 
But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What, what does that mean? Right, this is a complicated thing that Paul's laying out here. It's a little confusing at a cursory glance, but it's fascinating if you sit with Paul's reasoning for just a moment. Remember, going back to verse 15, Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Again, meaning not that Jews were not sinners, but rather that in contrast to the Gentiles, they, they were a law-keeping people. And yet, in seeking justification by faith alone in Christ alone, they, Paul, Peter, all the other Jewish believers were free from the ceremonial laws such as the dietary laws and physical circumcision. They were free to eat with Gentile believers. Peter was doing it. And in doing so, they became sinners, quote unquote, to use the limited sense of the language in verse 15. Jewish believers who, like the Gentiles, were no longer law keepers in neglecting those dietary laws so that they could gather around the table with Gentiles. Apparently, the, the argument of those having come from Jerusalem was that to become sinners in that limited sense would make Christ a servant of sin, verse 17. And Paul emphatically says, certainly not. That's not at all the case. In fact, let's turn this thing upside down on its head. It's not sin to be a sinner if by sinner we mean neglecting those dietary laws in order to fellowship with Gentile believers. No, Paul says, what would truly prove me to be a sinner in the fullest expression of the term would be if I were to rebuild what I tore down. Verse 18. What did Paul torn down? The law is a means to justification. In the words of one pastor and theologian, and maybe this gives some imagery to it that's helpful, what really makes a person a true transgressor of the law is not the neglect of its ceremonial statutes, but the horrible prostitution of the law of God, which turns it from a railroad track of grace into a ladder of works. Paul goes on in verse 19. He says, For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right, Paul died to the law in that he died to the notion that he could be justified by works of the law. And in doing so, like Martin Luther, if you go read his story, Paul came to life in God, having found life in the sweetness of freedom, united with Christ in his death and resurrection, given not only a new legal standing before God in Christ, but a new heart, a new identity. The old I, dead and buried. The new I, Paul says, alive to Christ. As he says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new covenant. A new name. A new standing. A new home. A new indwelling power. A new destiny. Christ alive in me, Paul says, verse 20. Living and abiding in his people, dwelling in our hearts through faith. Meaning, 
and I hope this is encouraging to all of us, meaning that Christ doesn't simply declare his people mine. He too declares of his people home. Christ, the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Don't miss the past tense language there, verse 20. Paul doesn't say that Jesus loves us, though that is surely true, but that Jesus loved us. Where did Jesus love us? Answer, at the cross. At the cross. If we ever doubt the love of God for us, we need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross, Paul says in verse 21, that's emptied of its purpose if right legal standing with God were through the law. Look at that verse as we close out this morning. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Right? Paul has been defending the true gospel up to this point, now turning things around on his opponents with these words, declaring that to set aside the grace of God as if righteousness could be obtained through the law would be to say that Jesus died for nothing. John Stott writes that the two foundation planks of the Christian religion are the grace of God and the death of Christ. The Christian gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. The Christian faith is the faith of Christ crucified. So if anybody insists that justification is by works and that we can earn salvation by our own efforts, such a person is undermining the foundations of the Christian religion. He or she is nullifying the grace of God because if salvation is by works, it is not by grace. And making Christ's death superfluous because if salvation is our own work, then Christ's work was unnecessary. Peter would have agreed. That is in gospel doctrine. And yet he was out of step with the truth of the gospel, along with those he had led down this path of hypocrisy. Again, it wasn't that Peter had embraced a a false gospel in doctrine. It was that he had embraced a false gospel in practice, unsaying by his conduct what he was saying by his doctrine. If it can happen to Peter, (laughs) none of us is beyond the danger of bringing reproach on the gospel. Paul makes plain in this morning's passage that we mustn't just affirm and preserve the gospel. We must apply and live in accordance with the gospel. As failing to do so is just as much an affront to the gospel. Again, the gospel is a truth first and foremost, but it's a truth that has implications for our lives so that we're to bring our lives in step with the truth of this gospel. So that I would ask this morning, of all of us, myself included, are there ways in, in which you're unsaying in conduct what you're saying in, in doctrine? Are there ways in which you're publicly endangering the corporate witness of the church in that regard? The good news is that Jesus died for answers to those questions too. Peter himself, he knew all too well. There's forgiveness in Jesus for we who fail, for we who deny, even three times over. So I would invite us this morning to run to him in a time of confession and repentance, giving thanks and praise for the 
the right legal standing we have before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Asking him to give us the grace we need to, that our conduct might be in step with the truth of the gospel. For the glory of him who loved us and gave himself for us. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.